Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Okay, we are live, and uh, we're ready to begin. We are, hopefully, I really hope that we will finish the introduction today with the last portion of the introduction of the Rambam, which he calls the Hakdama. Now, there's several Hakdamas to the Mora Nevuchim. We saw um, the Rambam placing a Shavua on us in the last introduction, trying to tell us how to read this book and uh, the textual style that we would be encountering. And the last part of the introduction is the Rambam trying to anticipate a reader finding contradictions in the Mora Nevuchim and concluding that the Rambam has goofed. And he wants to dispel that. Because as we've said before, the Rambam realizes that he's revealing information that is extremely esoteric and difficult to process. And some of the things that he's going to be presenting, he, has, he cannot present in a full-blown, overt fashion, and sometimes he has to conceal things with, um, in different ways. And so what he's going to tell us now is a general idea that when you find contradictions in texts in general, that can be the result of a number of reasons. But he wants to make sure that we understand that if you find contradictions in the Mora Nevuchim, you, you should know that it's exactly for what I... Uh, for purposes that I'm going to uh, tell you now momentarily. Sometimes contradictions appear in texts because they're actually contradictions. Other times contradictions appear in texts because they're not contradictions, they just appear to be contradictory. So let's take a look. The Rambam writes that one of seven causes should account for the contradictory or contrary statements to be found in any book or compilation. Let's go through the seven reasons why you might find contradictions in text. Reason number one, the first cause. The author has collected the remarks of various people with differing opinions, but has omitted citing his authorities and has not attributed each remark to the one who said it. <coughs> Contradictory or contrary statements can be found in such compilations because one of the two propositions is the opinion of one individual, while the other proposition is the opinion of another individual. Very simple. What kind of text would you say has contradictions like this? Mishnah. Perfect. Exactly. And the Ram is going to tell us in just a moment. This happens all the time in so many of our Jewish texts that we find contradictions simply because there's more than one opinion. Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and there are times, to be uh, truth be told, where attribution is not made to different parties. And therefore, it seems like a contradiction from one Mishnah to another, but it's really not. The second cause, the author of a particular book has adopted a certain opinion that he later rejects. Both his original and later statements are retained in the book. 
Now, we're not used to writing like this, because when you find a book, usually that one author has written, uh, he's going to erase things that he rejects. Let's say he starts off the book with a certain premise, and then in the middle of the writing the book, he realizes that he's made a big mistake in one of his premises in the beginning of the book. He'll rewrite that chapter. Just go to his word processor uh, and just uh, delete the text. Well, that's not always the case. What if a book is written over the course of decades? Or what if a book is written to record dialogues that are occurring in the base medrash? And a rabbi was quoted as saying something when he was in his 30s, and then was quoted by another disciple of his saying something contradictory when he was in his 60s. In that kind of situation, you might find both statements said by the very same person that contradict each other because the person actually changed his views later on in life. Okay, the third cause. Not all the statements in question are to be taken in their external sense. Some are to be taken in their external sense, while some others are parables and hence have an inner content. Alternatively, two apparently contradictory propositions may both be parables, and when taken in their external sense may contradict or be contrary to one another. So sometimes words can seem to be contradictory when they're both, one or both of them are meant to be metaphorical. Uh, an example that the Abarbanel gives, it says in one Pasuk, Hashem Ishmil Chama, like we just read in last week's Parsha. God is a man, a man of war. And yet the Navi says, Lo ish kel that God is not a man that should be subject to falsehood. So is God a man or is God not a man? Is God an ish or is he not an ish? Well, it's very easy. It depends on the context. Sometimes, metaphorically speaking, God is an ish. But in another context, using the same metaphorical idea, God, is, God distances himself from ishhood, and therefore it's not a contradiction. The fourth cause. There is a proviso that, because of a certain necessity, uh, has not been explicitly stated in its proper place. Or the two subjects may differ, but one of them has not been explained in its proper place, so that a contradiction appears to have been said, whereas there is no contradiction. And the Abarbanel says, well, just to put that in, in simpler language, um, we didn't understand one of the words. We understood either its context or we understood the true meaning of the word. Sometimes a word can be used to describe two different things, and depending upon the, way, the place where it appears, it means different things, so it's not really a contradiction. So the Abarbanel gives a really cute, uh, I shouldn't say cute, but he gives an interest, uh, uh, somewhat amusing um, analogy that the Gemara actually picks up on. Shlomo HaMelech said two statements that contradict each other. By the way, Kohelis is riddled with contradictions, as we know, right? But one of the contradictions that Shlomo HaMelech said uh, is, one Pasuk says, I find a woman to be more bitter than death. Okay? And then, of course, Shlomo HaMelech, the very same person, also said, in a different context, Matza Isha Matza Tov that if a person finds a woman, he finds goodness. So is, a, is an Isha, is a woman marmi maves, or is she tov? Well, of course, there's different kinds of women. Some women are more bitter than death, and some are actually quite good. So it all depends. You have the same word Isha, 
which means different things depending upon um, so the, the place where it appears, the context of where it appears, and that's the fourth cause. The fifth cause arises from the necessity of, of teaching and making someone understand. For there may be a certain obscure matter that is difficult to conceive. One has to mention it or take it as a premise in explaining something that is easy to conceive and that by rights ought, ought to be, sorry, let's go, we're going to page, all right, ought to be taught before the former since one always begins with what is easier. The teacher accordingly will have to be lax and using any means that occur to him or gross speculation will try to make that matter first matter some, will try to make that first matter somehow understood. He will not undertake to state the matter as it is truly in exact terms, but rather will leave it so in accord with the listener's imagination that the latter will understand only what he now wants him to understand. Afterwards, in the appropriate place, the obscure matter is stated in exact terms and explained as it truly is. Reason number five, really put more succinctly and simply, is that sometimes when I need to, I'm teaching uh, an instruction book, and the chapters become increasingly more difficult with each chapter as the student advances in his understanding of the material. Sometimes I will explain something in chapter one or in chapter two in more simplistic terms. And because of the simplicity of the terminology, I'm not exact. I don't use exact language. And therefore, when I get to a more advanced chapter later on in the book, it may appear as if I've said something different or contradictory to what I said more simplistically in an earlier chapter but they're really the same thing, but I just didn't elaborate and clarify and qualify what I had said in an earlier chapter. The sixth reason why contradictions appear. Now here, it's very important to know that up until now, the first five reasons that the Rambam has given as to why things seem contradictory is, is in reality there's no contradiction. Or there is a contradiction, but it's perfectly reasonable for there to be a contradiction because two people said it, okay? All right. But here now, in reason number six, the Rambam is going to tell us that sometimes people make mistakes. And as a result of mistakes, contradictions appear. So let's see what he says. The sixth cause is the contradiction is concealed and becomes evident only after many premises. The greater the number of premises needed to make the contradictions evident, the more concealed it is. It thus may escape the author who thinks there is no contradiction between his two original propositions. But if each proposition is considered separately, a true premise being joined to it and the necessary conclusion drawn, and this is done to every conclusion, a true premise being joined to it and the necessary conclusion drawn, after many syllogisms or it's, you know, uh, verbal arguments, the outcome of the matter will be that the two final conclusions are contradictory or contrary to each other. You find this in philosophical works all the time, the Rambam says. That is the kind of thing that escapes the attention of scholars who write books. A lot of times they may not even be aware of the fact that they contradicted themselves because they work using logical arguments, which is very, very important in medieval logic, medieval philosophy. And one logical argument takes them down one very long labyrinth of argumentation, and another Log another logical argument in a different chapter takes them down a totally different labyrinth of, of logical argumentation, and they come up with a conclusion that the author may not even be aware that in the course of these series of, of logical arguments, they've ended up contradicting themselves. And it's very natural for that to happen because sometimes logical arguments become very, very complex, and it's sometimes difficult even for the author to keep track. 
And I'll be honest with you, if I had to uh, force myself to make every single uh, uh, drusha that I've ever given be consistent with the other, I'd be in a heck of trouble. Because it, you know, because a lot of times you look at things one way and you come to one conclusion. And you could look at it, things another way another time and you come to a different conclusion. If, however, the two original propositions are evidently contradictory, if, however, you read chapter one and it says X, you read chapter two and it says not X, so, and it says so very openly without all of the different prefaces that led you to, that, to those conclusions, but the author has simply forgotten the first one writing down the second in another part of his compilation, this is a very great weakness. And that man should not be reckoned among those whose speeches deserve considerations. So when you find philosophical works that have such overt contradictions, you know that that's not a book that you want to follow. And finally, the seventh cause of contradictions. In speaking about very obscure matters, it is necessary to conceal some parts and to disclose others. Sometimes in the case of certain dicta, this necessity requires that the discussion proceed on the basis of a certain premise, whereas in another place, necessity requires that the discussion proceed on the basis of another premise contradicting the first one. In such cases, the vulgar must in no way be aware of the contradiction. The author accordingly uses some device to conceal it by all means. And so essentially, what the Rambam is writing is that sometimes it only appears to be a contradiction, but it's really concealing, it's a method of concealing information that is not meant for the masses. And so in order to conceal the information, I provide you sort of with a diversion, so to speak, where I can, my method of concealment is to, seems to contradict something that I'm going to be revealing later on. And so therefore, you'll have to uncover that. Now, of course, you see where he's going with this. Of course, you know that the Rambam, we said, it writes esoterically. That sometimes the surface looks like silver, and the, you, when, only when you look carefully do you realize that behind it is gold. And sometimes the silver seems to contradict the gold. And that's only because we need to conceal the gold because it's only meant for some of the, only the initiated. Okay, so now, so now let's see. The Rambam's going to sort of spell out where we can find these different contradictions in different kinds of texts. And then he's going to conclude with what kinds of contradictions you might find in the Morenevuchim. The contradictions that are to be found in the Mishnah and the Brysos are due to the first cause. What was the first cause? Anyone want to remind us? Different people's opinions. Different people's opinions. There you go. Thus, you will find that they constantly ask, does not the beginning of the passage constitute an objection against its end? In such cases, the answer is, the beginning is the opinion of Rabbi so-and-so, and the end of the Brysa is the opinion of a different Rabbi so-and-so. You likewise will find that they say, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi agreed with the opinion of a certain rabbi in this area or this matter, and therefore cited it anonymously. In another matter, he agreed with the opinion of another rabbi and therefore cited it anonymously. And sometimes those opinions Rebbe may hold of Rabbi X, let's say Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi, who redacted the Mishnah, may hold like Rabbi uh, Akiva in one respect and hold like Rebbe Yishmael in another respect. And when the, Brisa, when the Gemara questions it, it says, how can the Reisha be Rebbe Akiva and the Seifa be Rebbe Yishmael? And the answer is, well, that's why Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi chose to order it in that way, because in this halachic area, he holds like Rebbe Akiva, and this halachic area holds like Rebbe Yishmael. 
You often will find them also saying, who is the author of this anonymous passage? Such and such a rabbi. Who was the author of that passage of the Mishnah? Such and such rabbi. Such cases are innumerable. They happen all the time. The contradictions or divergences to be found in the Talmud. Now let's go to the Gemara. We've, so far we've talked about the Mishnah and the Brisa. Let's talk about the Gemara. Are due to the first cause and to the second. So what was the second type of contradiction? The author changes his opinion over time. So, so therefore, thus you will find them constantly saying, in this matter he agreed with this rabbi and in that with another rabbi, just like you find when they comment on the Mishnah, right? They likewise say he agreed with him on one point and disagreed on another. They also say the two statements are made by two Amoroim who disagree as to the opinion of a certain rabbi. All contradictions of this kind are due to the first cause. Contradictions due to the second cause are referred to when they say, Rav abandoned his opinion, or he retracted, you know. Rava abandoned that opinion. In such case, an inquiry is made as to which of the two statements is the later one. This is similar to their saying, in the first recension of the Talmud by Rabbi Ashi, he said one thing, and in the second, he said another thing. Because people evolve, and the difference between the Gemara and other texts that you and I are more familiar, more modern texts is, the more modern texts erase the retractions, and the Gemara does not erase the retractions because the Gemara is a recording of actual dialogues that occurred over the course of centuries in the base Medrash. That some passages in every, now let's look, now let's go on. You have sometimes prophetic books when taken in their external sense appear to contradict or to be contrary to one another. Why is that? That's due to the third cause and the fourth cause. So what do, so what do we mean by this? The third and fourth cause is that sometimes there's third cause is sometimes we speak in metaphor, and the, and therefore the metaphors seem to contradict each other when they don't really don't because we're speaking metaphorically and we're using the same word to refer to two different things. That happens in Navi all the time. Like I pointed out, Hashem Ishmil Chama Lo Ishkel Vichazev, and sometimes like in the fourth reason, um, a word can can have two meanings depending on its context. So, and it, it was with this in view that this entire introduction was written. So remember, the Rambam had said, remember we talked about these um, um, equivocal terms that sometimes words can mean multiple things? I talked about this already in the introduction. You already know how often the sages may their memory be blessed say, one verse says this and another verse says that. And then we say, let the third verse come and be the arbiter for which verse is correct. They straightaway establish that there is an apparent contradiction. Thereupon they explain that a proviso is lacking in the statement of the subject or that the two texts have different subjects. Thus they say, Shlomo, it, is it not enough for you that your words contradict those of your father? They also contradict themselves and so on. The Gemara says, the Gemara itself acknowledges that Shlomo HaMelech, especially in the book of Koheles, contradicts himself in the very text itself, where sometimes he will say that it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of festivity. And other times he says, eat, drink, and be merry, because what else, what else are you going to accomplish? Because we're all going to the same place. So, of course, Shlomo HaMelech contradicts himself many times, depending upon the context, the lesson, and, and so forth. Cases of this are frequent in the saying of the sages, may their memory be blessed. However, most of the prophetic statements they refer to concern commandments or precepts regarding conduct. 
Now, uh, uh, so in other words, uh, when we when we find contradictions in the neviim, we are talking about ethical lessons about how people should should comport themselves. We, on the other hand, propose to draw attention to verses that are apparently contradiction with regard to opinions and beliefs. So whereas you will find contradictions in psukim in the Torah about what the, what the law is, you will find contradictions in the Navi as far as what is moral and ethical, you will find sometimes in things that I'm going to be analyzing uh, when I quote psukim that there are apparent contradictions in proper philosophy or proper dogma and doctrine within Judaism. Part of this will be explained in some of the chapters of this treatise. For this subject, too, belongs to the mysteries of the Torah. So I will reveal some of the contradictions and, and, and uh, provide the resolution of those contradictions. And some of them I won't, because they belong to Sisrei Torah. And I'm not going to reveal everything, but I'll reveal some things. Finally, he says, whether the contradictions due to the seventh cause are to be found in the books of the prophets is a matter for speculative study and investigation. Now, this is a very strange statement that the Rambam makes. And what essentially he's saying is, is that reason number seven that I provided as to why you will find contradiction, who can re recall that reason? That was because sometimes the author deliberately shrouds his true meaning with something that is apparently contradictory because he wishes to exclude certain people from understanding what he really means. Now, whether or not we can actually say that there are verses in Tanakh that are done, that are written deliberately to obscure and to sort of lead people off the trail. What, what do you call that um, when a detective deliberately wants to? Uh, red herring? He gives you a red herring, or he, he, he tries to get you, off, get you off his tail. There are going to be two places that the Mephorshim point to where the Rambam's going to address this issue. He's going to find, he's going to show us that there are contradictions inherent in the book of Isaiah about uh, how long uh, God's anger will last and how long he will reject us and how long Israel or Jerusalem will be desolate and so forth. So just you can make a note of it if you want, but in section 2, chapter 29, he will address this, and in section 3, chapter 28, he will address these issues. But for now, he says, Statements about this should not be a matter of conjecture. We're going to have to look into this very carefully and discover and uh, delve into this subject more carefully later. Now, as for the divergences occurring in the books of the philosophers, or rather of those who know the truth, they are due to the fifth cause. So remember, what was the fifth cause? What's the fifth reason why there are contradictions? It's simple in the beginning to teach the concepts, but only when you get later. Right, you get more in-depth, and sometimes the analogy that I provided you at the beginning to help you understand was not exact, and I end up refining it later on. And that seems to be a contradiction, but it's not. OK, on the other hand, the contradictions occurring in most of the books of authors and commentators, other than those we have mentioned, are due to the sixth cause. And the sixth cause is the one that he was somewhat critical of because he said, you know, sometimes people get so bogged down into intricate argumentation they don't, don't even realize at the end that they've actually contradicted themselves. That will happen sometimes, and there were books of philosophy that I'm not going to be referring to where those contradictions occur. I just want you to know that they exist. Likewise, in the Midrashim and the Haggadah, 
there is to be found great contradiction due to this cause. Now, this is a, a very puzzling statement, very, very puzzling statement that the Rambam makes. But the Rambam says, that is why the sages have said, no questions should be asked about difficulties in Agadah. Now, what does he mean by that? There, first of all, I, there is no place in, in Chazal, in the Gemara, that the Gemara actually says that we don't ask questions on Agadic literature. But I can tell you where this can be found. It can be found in the Zohar. The Zohar says, Ein meshivan al It's in Tikkun Zohar. Now, it's unusual that the Rambam would quote the Zohar, which wasn't even written in his lifetime. But the idea existed in more esoteric Torah Shabbat Alpeh in the times of the Rambam. The Sefer Alei Tamar that I happened to refer to the other day says that from this perspective, what the Rambam really means to say is that Agadita is not always written with the same precision that we find in halachic discussions in the Gemara. Halachic discussions in the Gemara are written and stated with, with absolute precision and exactitude because halachic practice is at stake. But many times, Agadic literature is to provide us with metaphor and is to provide us with a lesson that we can apply to our lives. And therefore, there are many times when the language of Agadita is not always precise. And it's the lack of precision that will cause there to crop up different contradictions in some of the moral lessons and so forth. So I'm going to leave it at that for now. But the Rambam's approach is that we're not supposed to approach Agadic literature in the same way that we approach Halachic literature, which is in itself quite interesting. Sometime in the 18th century, there was an entire school of rabbinic uh, methodology that and the Chassam Sofer was very much into, his, into this. There's a Sefer called Klichemda that was very much into this. And, and Rav Rosanis of the, uh, the Shar HaMelech wrote a whole Sefer called the, the Parsha Strachim, which utilizes this method. It's a pilpalistic method in the analysis of Agadita. And I think if the Rambam were to look at this pilpalistic methodology of the analysis of Agadita, he would say, ah, you guys, come on. It's Agadita. It's not meant to be analyzed with the same kind of methodology that you analyze halachic literature. So I don't know why you're spending your time on this. Be that as it may, the Rambam writes this. Okay, and now, so, so now let's conclude. Um, that there are also to be found therein contradictions due to the seventh cause, in that sometimes chazal are very precise, even in Agadic literature, and they, do, and they will say something that apparently contradicts something else that they said, because they are writing something that is so deep that they need to lead the uninitiated off of the trail to, to provide with like a red herring, okay? Um, I also want to point out, as I've mentioned the other, I mentioned a few weeks ago, that Rabbi Yehuda Halevi also says a similar idea, and that many times Chazal will be quoting their Rebbeim, not fully understanding what they've actually said. So many times you will have a statement by sages, especially in Agadic, in the Agadic context, where they're saying something that is so deep that they themselves don't even realize what they're actually pronouncing. And they feel that it's necessary to provide this information in order to pass it on to their Talmudim after them. So you will find contradictions be, perforce because sometimes the information is so deep that we don't even fully grasp that it's uh, what, what it really means. Okay. As concerned with conclusions, but enjoy the journey of the logic and the poetry 
Well, yeah, I mean, that's what the Sefer Alei Tamar seems to conclude, is that he says that if the purpose of Agadita is not to have you make certain logical conclusions that you can apply to daily practice, they're supposed to provide you with inspiration and food for thought. And so therefore, it's not as problematic if it provides, if it, you end up with contradictions, because it's not meant to uh, to lead you to a certain very practical conclusion. Okay. Divergences that now, let's get to the punchline. Divergences that are found in this treatise are due to the fifth cause and the seventh cause. Okay, remember the fifth cause was, I'm starting off simple for you dummies, right? For you, for you uh, people who are not initiated yet. Right? So philosophy for dummies starts is at the beginning of Mora Nevuchim, right? And so I'm going, to, I'm going to speak very simplistically as we get started. But the further along we get in this journey, I will be speaking more in a more complex fashion, with more complexity, and that is why you will notice, perhaps, that there may be contradictions. Because it is necessary that when I speak simplistically to the uninitiated, I speak in a matter that may be not with the same exactitude and precision as to a more advanced topic, to a more advanced audience. So that's, you have to give me credit for that. And the seventh reason, of course, is that I will be contradicting myself, and, and Leo Strauss goes, uh, has a field day in many of his writings on this idea, is that the Rambam says, I will be deliberately leading you off the trail because I need to obscure something that you're just not able to handle. Um, and this is really where um, Strauss goes out on a limb. And he says that even in the places where the Rambam says that he completely disagrees with Aristotle, he's really winking at us and tells, and really in some places he might actually agree when he says he disagrees. Now this is very controversial because the Rambam, you know, the, this is sort of the battle um, in the scholarly world, um, in those who, who read the Rambam, as to who is, the, will the real Rambam please stand up? Because we don't always know whether he's, he means it or whether he's winking at us and telling us that, of course, Aristotle is wrong. Wink, wink. Right? And so that'll be something that we'll have to approach when we get to certain difficult topics. And again, I'm going to contradict myself. You'll think that it's because of the sixth reason that I didn't remember that I said something or that my logic is different over here and it led me down to a different conclusion. Oh, no, 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 no. I know exactly what I'm saying. Okay. After these, oh, oh so he says, know this, grasp its true meaning, and remember it very well so as not to become perplexed by some of the chapters that you find in Mora Nevuchim. And, and after these introductory remarks, I shall begin to mention the terms whose true meaning as intended in every passage according to its context must be indicated. In other words, the, per the main purpose of Moran Nebuchim, as I've said before, says the Rambam, is to help you understand different terminologies and ideas that are found in the Tanakh. This then will be a key permitting one to enter places, the gates to which were locked. And when these gates are opened and these places are entered into, the souls will find rest therein, the eyes will be delighted, and the bodies will be eased of their toil and of their labor. Amechaya. That's quite so, a claim. That's it? quite a claim. 
Yes. Uh, now, whether or not that's going to happen to each and every one of us at each and every chapter, I cannot say. But um, the Rambam really, again, you have to remember, he's writing this book with a tremendous amount of trepidation, as he said, like we learned the last week. He realizes that some of the people who are going to be reading this book are just simply not going to get it, and they're going to be frustrated. And so he wants to let us know, be patient. Don't be quick to be dismissive. Understand that I know what I'm doing. And that's really the main thrust of this whole section where he talks about contradictions. Questions, comments? As history and rabbinic analysis, which rigorously has looked at this, agreed that he did what he was doing? Do we say Rambam is the guy? Well, the Rambam is the guy that everyone agrees to. But, you know, as to whether everyone agrees that the Rambam never contradicted himself and knew exactly what he was doing and all he, so that's, you know, of course, there are, <coughs> Strauss himself is not so sure that the Rambam didn't end up contradicting himself. In a way that Rambam wouldn't have been happy if he Right, right, right. In other words, you can say something at the outset of when you write a book and you say, I know exactly what I'm doing. But then, of course, you know, you have to, you have to display a certain sense of confidence if you're going to be leading your students down a path. But when you actually get into the thick of it, Will you actually be as sure of yourself as you thought you would be when you first started? I don't know. I don't know. And so I can't really answer that question. Um, as far as, so I think that there are different ways of reading the Moranavuchim, as you'll see as we go along. There's no question that there are different ways of reading it and different ways of, um, I, I, my approach is that whenever I find something that I don't understand, I chalk it up to something that the Rambam said in his introduction. Uh, I'm just too thick, uh, and I don't get it, and he's trying, he's either not saying what I think he's saying, or he's deliberately obscuring the matter, and then we go on. We also have to appreciate that the type of syllogisms that he's referred to, logical arguments that are so, unless you've really carefully uh, been trained in syllogistic writing, it's going to be very hard for you to really intelligently go up against the Rambam we're entering into a genre of literature that we don't have any formal training in, which is medieval philosophy. So we're going to have to try to get through it as best as we can and humbly acknowledge that we are but neophytes in the presence of a master. And we'll try to get through it. Okay? Yes. The question, <clears throat> he, was, he geared this towards a select few, right? Yes, one in 10,000, he said. So what about the rest of the, the community? Is he not concerned about enlightening them as to you know, the whole idea of this in another format, perhaps? Well, I, I think his conclusion was that most of the community is not going to be, even be interested in this kind of thing. You know, you have the Pasha Yidin, you have the simple Jew who does what he needs to do because it's his it's tradition. And then you have the really pensive, thoughtful Jew, and those are much rarer. It's a much rarer breed. And even those thoughtful, pensive people are going to have to work hard in order to be able to have access to what I'm trying to, to explain. It seems that his, uh, his uh, analysis of contradictions actually assumes that people will see contradictions. So yes. I think it affirms the elitist nature of the, of the book that he's, that he's writing. That it is elitist, we've already established, yeah, yeah, yeah. but that, that may not be a bad thing. 
Okay, we'll Rabbi, hold it. The that we have today doesn't have that two extremes. We have lots of people who yeah. are 